Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Today on the show, I welcome Tommy Rosen. Tommy is a world-renowned yoga teacher, author, and addiction recovery expert. He is the founder and CEO of Recovery 2.0, a global organization that fosters community for people in recovery from addiction. Recovery 2.0 provides a holistic approach to living free from substance dependency, offering classes, workshops, courses, and retreats focused on mindfulness and meditation. Tommy just does incredibly important work. Tommy shares his personal experience on the show with cannabis dependency and what led him to the eventual realization that relying on marijuana for his emotional well-being and sense of identity ultimately did not address the bigger underlying issues. In our conversation, Tommy provides a nuanced perspective on cannabis use, acknowledging both its positive uses and its very real negative impacts in a world where the substance is more widely available than it's ever been in history. Now we discuss the impact of legalization on usage and abuse. We explore the impacts of commercialization, which has led to higher THC concentrations. And we talk about some of the new emerging cannabis related syndromes that are flooding emergency rooms. Tommy also outlines the primary tenets of life beyond cannabis, his six-week program focused on exploring the spiritual and psychological aspects of recovery. But before we dive in, we're so grateful to those of you who write us reviews on Apple Podcasts that we've created an offer just for you, 30 days of free commune membership. That's all access for a whole month. Just scroll down to the review section and tap write a review. Then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your review, preferably a positive one, to receive your free all access for 30 days. Note that if you're on a laptop, you'll need to click listen on Apple Podcasts to open the app. And while you're there, make sure that you're subscribed. Okay, without further delay, I present to you Tommy Rosen. Okay, Tommy Rosen, welcome back to the Commune Podcast. What a delight. Thank you, Jeff. I'm so delighted to be here. Yeah. Um, so you've recently released a program um, called Life Beyond Cannabis, um, which is focused, I'd say, on, on helping people recover from cannabis addiction and much more. Um, and for numerous cultural, um, legislative medical reasons, this program is just right on time uh, for so many, many, many people. And we'll unpack kind of why and how that is, uh, hopefully mm -hmm. over our time together. Um, but given that your personal biography informs so much of your work, um, perhaps we could start by uh, you scaffolding a little bit of your personal background here as to how you came to the work that you so brilliantly do. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jeff. Uh, well, reflecting on my own personal experience, if you're going to create a program called Life Beyond Cannabis, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. at some point, <laughs> you must have had a, had a life, uh, a pretty profound life with cannabis. 
And so I think for the purposes of this topic, um, I could tell you that I, I began smoking cannabis when I was 13. I was in New York City. And my running partner at the time called me up and said, you know, hey, you know, come hang out. I've got something for, for us, you know. And the first couple of times that I smoked pot, I actually didn't feel anything. And I started to think it was actually a joke. I thought it was a big hoax that everybody was just making a big deal out of something that actually was nothing at all. I literally thought that. <laughs> and, then I, and then I got high for the first time. And when I got high for the first time, it was as if I took the first breath, first deep breath of my life, sincerely. Mm. Uh, a certain amount of background anxiety just released. Um, any kind of emotional turbulence sort of just not there all of a sudden. And I felt at ease. Sincerely, I felt at ease for the first time that I could remember as a child. And I walked out and it was a new day. It was a new possibility. And I, I reflected, even then I remember reflecting, wow, I, I have the power to do something to my consciousness that makes me feel different and I like it. And I feel powerful in a way that I haven't really felt before. There's something I can do to make myself feel better. The quick precursor to that moment is that I had engaged in many methods of feeling better throughout my whole childhood. American television, uh, pinball and video games, um, constant movement and athletics, like never able to sit still, like really uh, uh, extreme hyperactivity. And a diet uh, food, I really went after sugar. And so I had the I had the diet to fuel my hyperactivity and my up and down sort of way of existing in the world. So when I found cannabis, it was a tremendous upgrade, tremendous upgrade to those things I had been using up to that point. Cannabis was a massive upgrade to American television, pinball, video games, and really terrible food. And, uh, Emotionally, it really did put me at ease rather than just sort of distract me. There was a sense of ease in my distraction, if you will. So what seems to be the problem with that? You know, what a great thing. What a, what a great discovery. <laughs> and uh, there were a few problems as a 13-year-old kid and 14-year-old kid and 15-year-old kid is that it put a rift between me and my parents it affected some of the core relationships in my life. My parents were very, uh, my father in particular, very conservative on this route. And he had really, really bought into the, the just say no ethic of the time. So um, we're talking about the early 80s and President Reagan is in office. His wife, Nancy, came up and, and took on the war on drugs as her, her main theme. And Just Say No was sort of the mantra of that administration in facing, uh, you know, they, they sort of like, they brought uh, cannabis and crack cocaine and cocaine and heroin and all these things under one umbrella as all just terrible, horrendous things. But my direct experience was that this really made my life easier. I really liked it, and and there I couldn't see what the what the massive consequence was and what the problem was, 
Um, I, I didn't see things the way they saw things. Uh, and I certainly don't see the things the way they saw things now. Um, but there was an interesting rift that put, you know, between me and my, my folks that was really hard for me to navigate in those days. Hmm. You want me to go through the, the, the whole the whole tale? Well, sure. Although I'll just add at this juncture as a copious adolescent pot smoker myself, um, that so many activities seem to be not completely fulfilled without the addition of cannabis for me. Anyhow, oh, we're yes. going on a road trip. Oh, well, yeah, we got to get high. Oh, we're going to play music. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, of course, we're going to get high, <laughs> uh, you know, essentially any activity we're going out into nature, you know, oh, of course, we're going to get high because we want to be at one, you know, with nature. Any right. activity you could possibly think of seemed to be enhanced by this external agent and, and <laughs> right until yes. it wasn't. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. it's interesting that that phenomena of cannabis becoming a part of all activities and, and all all activities being made better in some way by the fact that you're high. Uh, it really, for me, from where I'm sitting today, it really speaks to a certain level of dependency or, or, or at least confusion at the beginning. So the confusion is, is that if I have cannabis with this experience, this experience will be made somehow uh, more intense or more beautiful or rendered somehow more real or more truthful, more deep. Um, but Really, that's a confusion, and a, and I think I think it's a it's a spiritual disconnection from what actually is in a way. So, like like I told you, I'm growing up with television, pinball, video games, and shitty junk food. Um, I'm at a I'm at a disconnection from frankly, uh, I'm at a disconnection from the planet, from the food I'm eating, uh, from experience beyond the city. I know Central Park, that's what I know, and that's about all I know in terms of nature in a way. Yes, my family takes trips to other places, but my world is, is really a world of great, great disconnection. And cannabis somehow seems to close that disconnection and, and bring me into closer proximity to things, and I'm interested in that. My confusion is, is I'm not, I don't know that I can get that any other way. So now, I, 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 in my mind, as I move on through my adolescent years, I'm thinking without cannabis, I really can't connect with life. I really can't connect with the beauty and the awe of existence itself. I don't really know what contentment is. I know what relief is. I feel it every time I smoke cannabis and, and I might confuse that with contentment, but I've become dependent upon this thing to start to have experiences in my life that, that feel meaningful. And that's, a, that's where sort of the problem begins, I think, for people. One place. I mean, for you, it seemed that cannabis was a tool to dull the kind of sharper edges of life. I mean, whether you had technically had like ADHD or something, I'm not 100% sure, but it sounded between your diet and just potentially your genetics and your upbringing that you suffered from a degree of hyperactivity and that cannabis provided, as you say, that kind of sense of ease and tranquility, serenity to the moment. I think obviously 
other people are utilizing it um, to assuage other forms of problems. Is that right? Oh, yeah. I think people use cannabis for a variety of reasons. If I, I say to people, you know, my I characterize ultimately my relationship with substances like cannabis as addictive for me. And what I mean by that is there was a certain dependency upon it, a craving to have it and a terrible irritability or even dread when I didn't have it. Um, right. And I had to yeah. <laughs> reorganize my life um, into something that I could enjoy without it. Ultimately, I had to recover it, from it that way. Did yeah, I just remember the visceral <laughs> feeling as the bag got emptier and emptier. <laughs> you know, one's attention would start to focus on how am I going to fill this bag up again <laughs> and until yeah. it was empty. And then the panic would essentially set in. You're like, oh, my God, uh, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to uh, carry on with my life until I kind of figure this thing out. That's right. Um, and I think, you know, you obviously, because I, I know your biography a little bit, um, you know, got involved with, you know, what are deemed kind of harder drugs, um, you know, before you were able to go clean. And, you know, I think you, I've heard you make this point about cannabis specifically, is that, you know, cannabis is not going to kill you necessarily like crack or heroin, but it has a almost more insidious function. Yeah. Yeah, I want to I want to address that. Uh, just just that previous question about dip people coming to it for different reasons. There's mental health issues of every kind. There's anxiety. There's depression. There's just stress and overwhelm. There's also um, just exploration, just mm -hmm. joyful exploration. And I I, I want to say at this juncture in our conversation that I'm I'm not against cannabis. I'm not for cannabis. I think it's it's detrimental when it becomes your life or your lifestyle. Um, it may be something that people use at some point in their life that can be helpful to them at some point in their life. Um, I'm not making a statement one way or the other. Just from my own direct experience and the people that I work with in the world, the, the tens of thousands of people I work with since 1991, uh, I'm just here to shine some light on what it is and, and what it isn't. And people come to it for every reason. And some of those reasons are great reasons. Uh, we're, some, some of us are just seeking uh, balance or ease or something different, or we miss ritual, or we miss uh, rites of passage in our life. Such a powerful thing. And um, so I just wanted to say that I, I'm, I'm a libertarian, first and foremost. Like I really believe people should have the freedom to do what they want, more or less, without hurting other people or abjectly hurting themselves. This falls into that middle category of we want people to be well informed, uh, especially children who might end up using cannabis. And using cannabis today is incredibly different from when I was using cannabis for a lot of reasons, which we can discuss in a minute. Um, but uh, to address your next question, would you, do you mind if, if you'd pose that again? Uh, yeah, <laughs> you I'm might sorry. have to uh, sh sh shake my mental tree. It's um, okay. Well, well, no, yeah, I think it, it, it pertains mostly to, 
how we think of cannabis generally in our culture and increasingly in our culture now as relatively safe and non-addictive and even yeah. beneficial in some cases yeah. versus how we think about, um, you know, harder narcotics such as, you know, heroin or crack. And maybe yes. can you can you pull those apart? Because I, I know you yeah. have kind of personal experience with the rainbow. Yeah, the rainbow <laughs> of, substance. Illicit substances. Yeah. 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 So uh, it's silly. It's ridiculous, actually, for anybody to put cannabis in the same category as heroin, as cocaine. These are completely different categories of experience, of substance, of, um, of chemical makeup, um, and of detriment. You can, you can smoke or use cannabis for a lifetime and get away with it. There'll be yeah. some things that you're missing, in my opinion, but you can get away with it. It won't kill you necessarily, other than some of the perhaps the, the detrimental effects of drawing any smoke into your lungs on a daily basis. Right. Um, but, you know, we used to make fun of people when I was a kid. Anybody who put down cannabis, we were sort of like, OK, you are outside of the club. Okay, you are not a cool person. I will not be hanging out with you. You will not be hanging out with me. We do this thing that's super cool and it's magical and it's mystical and you don't understand and you're outside of this thing. Like we really, really were the cool kids, you know? That's how we, how we saw ourselves. And I think there's, there's this certain phenomenon of like people who smoke cannabis enter a kind of a club and it's a very hard club to get out of. It's a super easy club to get into, but it's such a hard club to get out of because it becomes a little bit enmeshed with your identity. So there's this identity, identity crisis that we're all in. And I think cannabis to a certain extent can solve that for people up to a certain point. Now, cocaine and, and heroin and all the opiates, um, you know, the, the opiates, like we're really grateful to have opiates on the planet, like really grateful when we're injured, when we are in war-torn situations, when we have a ski accident, a car accident, when we're having an operation, like we are so grateful for this class of drugs. Like we're so glad we have it. And anybody who's ever had an operation or any, any traumatic injury can, can attest to that fact. The problem with opiates is that it also addresses our emotional pain. It doesn't just address physical pain. And that's, that's sort of the rub there, because when it takes all of your physical pain away, it also takes your emotional pain away. You feel really warm, really comfortable, <laughs> like a warm jacket, like somebody's hugging you. It feel, you know, people have described it like, I felt like somebody was giving me a loving embrace. You know, that's that veil of the opiates is like a very, very different thing from cannabis. Cocaine is just straight up a psychotic type drug. It's an amphetamine. It's, it's an upper. Um, it, it, it falsely empowers a person. 
uh, it so depletes your life energy and your and it just tweaks your nervous system in the worst way possible. And I speak from direct experience. And uh, that's also such a different class of drugs and experience from cannabis. You can't really compare them. Cannabis has this strange characteristic of it sort of pushes things aside for a moment. Medically, a medical fact, it calms the hyperactive mind. It calms the hyperactive mind. And I, as you, as you alluded to earlier, I needed that. I needed that as a kid and, and as a young adult. Um, cannabis helps uh, a person to, who can't deal with their emotional state. In a way, it pushes that emotional state aside temporarily and maybe you can have a day now or you can sort of get going and be in this place. It also, in the early years, uh, it can create true true joy and true true antics and fun and, and connection with others. And so it's not all good, not all bad, right? Um, we kind of have to get into that field that Rumi spoke about, um, out beyond wrongdoing and right doing. There's a field, I'll meet you there. I say that because if we can get in a non-moralistic context here, if we can get in a, a conversation that has nothing to do with morality, that'll be helpful. So we can really sort of discover what's really here. So it has this interesting characteristic of pushing aside some of the challenging states, which will return later. No matter how, how many times you push those things aside, because for 11 years, I smoke cannabis, you know, nearly every day. And um, it, uh, when I finally put it down, guess what was waiting for me? Me, all of me, all of the shit that I thought I had been pushing aside for 10 years, it was still there. I, I hadn't healed myself. I hadn't grown through the things I needed to grow through. I had just paused things. And so that's, that's an unfortunate realization after 11 years that the medicine wasn't really behaving like medicine because I feel any medicine has to make itself eventually obsolete, but not this one. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Um, and I think that's a good segue because obviously there's been a lot of attributes about the medicinal, um, impacts or qualities, attributes, if you will, of marijuana. Um, I actually pulled like a few just data points that we can talk about for a second. So like in 1996, sure. I think that's when California first passed medical marijuana. So that was the first medical mar marijuana legislation. And, you know, I, I researched like, what are all the medical benefits of cannabis? Okay. So chronic pain relief. Uh, certainly I think we are familiar with people that have used it for like arthritis or fibromyalgia, or I think even MS, um, reduced inflammation, neuroprotective properties, um, appetite stimulation. I think that one was one of the early touted ones, particularly with people with going Cancer through patients. chemotherapy. Yeah, exactly. Or, um, I think AIDS too, because it, it, that came up kind of when the AIDS crisis was more acute than it is mm -hmm. now. Some people um, get relief from nausea and vomiting from cannabis, though the opposite is true as well, as we might discuss. Uh, 
it's long been touted as a um, as treating glaucoma um, sleep more and more currently. I think a lot of people use uh, you know THC gummies and indica gummies, etc., as sleep aids. Um, there's protection against certain tumors. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So, in 1996. California passed this medical marijuana legislation. I think, you know, those of us on the progressive side of things were like, oh, hallelujah, this is, you know, fantastic. <laughs> Hooray, the world finally caught up to what we all knew. Yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, here we, you know, moved through the aughts and into the early teens. And then in 2012, Colorado, I believe, was the first state to pass legislation legalizing recreational marijuana. And I think as you've pointed out to me, kind of in our exchanges before we got on this podcast, I believe there's 22 other states now um, that have legalized rec recreational marijuana. So what has been the impact there of legalizing marijuana? Yeah, well, you know, again, I think it's it's in a way it's a it's a, a positive thing from the perspective of I don't think government should be involved in these decisions for people. Um. If we were talking about other substances, I might disagree. Um, but the impact of this legislation has been nothing short of just monumental. Uh, it has literally changed uh, the experience of a lot of society. Um, all of a sudden, what happens when you legalize something is, in America at least, you get the American marketing machine behind it. And all of a sudden there's an opportunity to make some money, not just some money, but an incredible amount of money. And so now you have a, a substance that has pros and cons, but as the marketing gets behind it, you're hearing a lot more about the pros and a lot less about the cons. <laughs> So there's an educational problem that's taking place. Now, you as a parent of, of three, um, on some level, as those kids are growing up, uh, you know, whatever your position is on cannabis, from, from the most conservative to the most liberal position, um, you would want your kids to be able to make good decisions for themselves. You want them to be able to self-reflect I think that's very important that parents, you know, generally speaking would say, yeah, I'd like my child to be able to self-reflect and I'd like them to be able to self-correct when they need to. Um, and so you'd be concerned about a bandwagon with billions of dollars behind it. So yeah. this is part of the answer is what, what has the impact been? Well, the American marketing machine has gotten behind this. Billions of dollars are being spent every year. Um, to, to push and advocate for the using of cannabis as a stated way that we're going to get through life collectively together. I don't know if you remember this, but during COVID, uh, I believe that the dispensaries were classified as an essential business. Right. And so all of the dispensaries on Ventura Boulevard, very close to me in Studio City, down the hill, 
um, those all remained open right. um, because they were classified as essential because yes. people <laughs> required their marijuana supplements, uh, yeah. if you will. And, and now it's kind of sort of gotten conjoined with the supplement business somehow, um, right. you know, to be able to to sleep. And, and, and you know, the legalization piece, uh, first of all, as you say, it's obviously the accessibility goes way, way up. But I think as you point to, the stigma is completely reduced. So, you know, particularly children, I have three teenage daughters, um, you know, the stigma around it to the degree that there is one, you know, it, it is gone. Um, yeah. And then uh, and then that club, the, the doors to the club, the marijuana club are even wider, <laughs> right? And they're just opening up and they're saying, come on oh, yeah. in. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, to the degree that, you know, I, I remember when, when California was like hurtling towards legislation, recreational legislation, uh, there wasn't a week that would go by that I wouldn't get some form of deck from a venture firm, like raising tons of money, you know, just focused on the commodification and commercialization of marijuana. I'm sure you remember yeah. that time period. Oh, yeah. um, and now there's even like, like marijuana tourism that that is even a kind of thing where it's like come yeah. to the great state of Colorado or Washington or California or increasingly more states, uh, you know, to enjoy the bevy of options that we have here available for you uh, in our dispensaries. So it is a uh, it's just the Wild West. It's I just want to say it's such a trip that when I was smoking cannabis, I dreamt of a world where cannabis was legal. <laughs> right. Exactly. I really did. Yeah. And now I'm, I'm in the world where cannabis is legal. And I'm like, this is not exactly what I had envisioned. You know, no. <laughs> well, you're all, you, utopia. And it's not just because you're an iconoclast. It's just I, I think that, you know, now we're, we're seeing the actual real impacts of it. And as you say, you're 100 percent right. Once the corporate machinery gets behind the thing, um, uh, it's much less fashionable to talk about the mental health issues or other very, very acute, severe issues that are associated with yes. overuse. So what are, what are some of those, you know, negative um, yeah. impacts of overuse? Yeah, so we, just to your point, we do understand, of course, that there are some positive uses, no question, for cannabis. We're also grateful to have it um, for, for our, our, our beloved brothers and sisters who are struggling with chemotherapy and struggling with other uh, diseases where they can't eat and to have their appetite back. And, you know, there are uses for it. And I, again, this is not black and white. And I want everybody to know that as we get into this conversation about what are some of the problems and what are some of the challenges. So, um, you know, for me, what I'm seeing uh, these days and in my own direct experiences People who chronically use cannabis to a great percentage, a great percentage of them report to me that they don't feel like they're able to realize their potential. Like they say that, those words, like I can't explain it, they tell me, but I feel like there's more, but I I, I can't quite get to it. I feel like my motivation is sapped or... When I get home in the evening and I smoke a joint, 
that's kind of, for me, that's kind of relaxation time and, and it's the end of my creativity or my mind goes into a different place. And I'm not saying that it's a bad place, but I'm wondering if there's something more for me beyond my daily or, or bi-weekly or whatever it is, cannabis use. So, so there is this connection with just hopes and dreams. Uh, one's ability to be uh, fully present and engaged in a process that leads to some sense of fulfillment rather than a getting through. So I think cannabis, in my experience and many people's experiences, it's a, a useful way to get through life. And where I'm at and where the people that are in, for example, our Recovery 2.0 community, one of the common denominators of that community is that people don't want to get through life. They want to thrive. They want to have an extraordinary life. And they consider the idea of getting through life the way they used to live. And they they want to find ways to live fully and to live in purpose and, and in a sense of fulfillment every day. And if there's something that they could be doing that would sap them of that ability, they would want to stay away from that substance. So I, I tell people it's a little bit like this. You Cannabis is the drug, the substance, the medicine, the plant, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's the thing that you do that has pleasantness associated with it that you don't know the price you're going to pay for it mm. until later. Mm. It, it, it really is deferred. The, the price you're going to have to pay, it, it is a deferred price. And when the price tag comes in, finally, you're kind of like, well, I'm, I'm not going to pay this bill. <laughs> Who, who, who accrued right. this bill? Right. Yeah. You know, I, I don't, don't remember putting that on my credit card. Uh, right. Did I do and, that? And, yeah. and the price is, is a little bit of this feeling of, I thought there was something more. Mm. And that's a terrible feeling. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to sap our, our human potential. I've heard you describe it as living a half filled life and I've heard you say that and it struck a chord with me and it, it reminded me of this quote from Moby Dick. I don't know if you know this quote, but I just pulled it, which is, for as this appalling ocean surrounds the verdant land, so in the soul of man there lies one insular Tahiti, full of peace and joy, but encompassed by all the horrors of the half-known life. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember hearing Wayne Dyer give that quote once at a, at a lecture and it always like stuck with me. Yeah. And the horrors of a half known or a half lived life. Yeah. And that is often the product of this addiction. Um, there's, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to say about that. Can, can I, can I comment on that for a moment? Please. Yeah. Um, I spoke about a time when I was in India looking at a sunset. You might have seen the, the, the video where I recognized that I was just present with the sunset. And this was some years, some years into, into my abstinence and recovery from all drugs. And I felt that experience of being just with the sunset. And it was the first time I felt like I was, that I could remember as a sober person 
it's the first time I really felt like I was alive uh, without any substance or any person or anything that I was uh, relating to other than the idea of being alive itself. I sincerely don't believe I ever could have had that experience. Of course, I couldn't have ever had that experience if I was still using cannabis. Because in the back of my mind somewhere would have been the sneaking thought, yeah, but you know, this could be better. This could be even better if you, if you got high right now or if you, you know. And so it's such an important experience to have. And it, it, I really, it's one of the most victorious sort of moments of my life. While that might seem small or paltry to, to somebody, that is a victory for someone to recognize, oh, I'm alive. Nothing was required. It's just me. I'm alive. The spirit, if you will, is running through me. And, and there's a connection. And that Tahiti in the soul, um, it's like, oh, I'm aware of that now. That gives me a true north. That gives me a place to look. That gives me something that, oh, that's what life is about. Could I, could I return there and cultivate that space for myself? So these are some of the spiritual and, and maybe psychological uh, uh, detrimental aspects to chronic cannabis use. We can go to the very gross physical things that we're seeing now, which is that, you know, I wish I had a nickel every time someone said to me that, you know, the cannabis today is so much more powerful than the cannabis you, spoke, you smoked in 1985. And of course, I have no experience with that, but I take their word for it. Um, and I go, I, you know, I walk by MedMen and all these dispensaries uh, on Abbott Kinney in Los Angeles. And I'm like, the, the feeling of it is like, wow, first of all, it feels like a, a really, uh, for me, it feels like a really, really sleazy, um, sort of yucky grocery store. And <laughs> it really does. It feels awful. The energy is just awful to me. You know, I'm sure there's people who yeah. love cannabis that are like, that's the greatest place in the world. Um, but but the the physical effects of, of strains of cannabis this strong mm -hmm. are messing with the human brain, nervous system, endocrine system, that is to say the hormonal system of the body, in ways that we never we never used to associate with cannabis. So we're now seeing all these you know, these unbelievably uh, acute and painful events associated with, with young people and people of every age using cannabis chronically. Mm -hmm. It's intense. Our human biology has simply not evolved to manage the amount of THC interacting with our cannabinoid receptors, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and that's creating all sorts of downstream impacts. I mean, you sent me a quote <clears throat> from a, I think emergency room doctor. Um, <clears throat> I can't remember exactly what the, the rates were, but he was, I think he reported seeing like an 1800 times increase yeah. in people coming into the emergency room for cannabis related um, issues. And, you know, I'll just kind of speak, you know, directly to that. And from a personal perspective, there's someone that I just care about very, very deeply 
who um, who experienced one of the most acute and severe horrible responses to cannabis use um, with a syndrome that's now called cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome um, and uh, um, from this personal experience it is uh, it is just um, unbelievable what the physical ramifications are it is a vomiting bouts of non-stop incessant vomiting for six to eight hours at a time that can only be relieved by heavy morphine sedation and um, mm -hmm. and obviously IV and, and, and nothing um, you know will will assuage it the Zofran and all the normal anti-nodules will not even touch it um, so you're getting into like chemotherapy drugs and all this kind of stuff to 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 dull the the nausea and, and vomiting and um, and I've been now in a couple emergency rooms around that situation and the rotating emergency room doctor recognizes it immediately and has told me to my face now a number of different times we are seeing this 10 20 times a day coming through our emergency rooms generally with young people um, who have other um, you know indicators generally anxiety or, or eating disorders so it is uh, it's not something that's being covered in the mainstream press yet it hasn't really bubbled yeah. up there but yeah. this on the ground level is is happening and it's happening in, in significant numbers yeah, I'm, 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 that's, that's an awful story. And I will tell you that back in the day, once again, I would have said, you're lying. This is, <laughs> right. this is propaganda. This is bullshit because there's no way that cannabis would do anything like that. And we would have said, no, no, no. We would just call you out on that. And yet, uh, I know I see it in front of my face. Um, I'm seeing cases of uh, what, what we're, we're calling now marijuana psychosis. Mm -hmm. There was no such thing. As these things never there, there was never I mean, no no it was it was just not that and so to speak yeah this and if, is, you, if you're interested in learning like you can go on Facebook and join these Facebook groups of like cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome or some of the other ones that you've referred to and these groups are like 20,000 people big all with you know personal Sports. anecdotes about what's going on so yeah. it's not bullshit yeah yeah no i yeah. i appreciate that i i want to say that um speak in a, in a little different way about this let's just say that we could consider the the untainted cannabis plant like all plants to be sacred if we could just come from yeah. that place and say, well, these are sacred plants. The, the onlay of Western context, Western media, Western money, Western hype, um, a Western way of seeing things, the onlay of that over these sacred plants is creating a, a hybridized, tainted, uh, seemingly toxic uh, version of these plants. 
um, which in their natural form was never that. Yeah, no. And this is, of course, what we've become so adept at doing. I mean, I, I might make the same argument for wheat. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, we, you know, there was a time where, you know, we didn't produce, uh, you know, dwarf wheat rank on rank, uh, you know, spray it with every form of pesticide and herbicide and glyphosate, et cetera, yes. uh, process it, ultra process it, refine it uh, such that it hijacks our evolutionary biology. And that's what's happening here, too. Yep. So I love that comparison to wheat. Also psychedelics and the resurgence of psychedelics. Uh, again, yeah. uh, I'm all for it. I like people getting to learn, but that onlay again of the Western mentality and the context here onto these sacred plants is, is causing some very major problems and misunderstandings and misconceptions. And yes, um, all of these substances are potentially addictive. And I want to make that yeah. really clear for people. Of course they are. Well, I want to get into the program um, because it is so applicable for so many people. So for those of you listening or watching, you've just heard what's going on. And let me just underscore that with just a few numbers, some of which you shared with me. But, you know, from 2018, I'm sorry, from 2008 to 2021, which is the data that I could find from the National Survey on Drug Use and Health. The percentage of U.S. adults age 18 to 25 who've used marijuana in the past month increased from 16.5% to 35.5%. In Colorado, over that same period, it was 13.6% in 2006 to 41.5% in 2021. In Washington State, from 14.5% in 2006 to 40% in 2021. So we're not talking about just like incremental, incrementally more people using marijuana. Now, of course, some more, because the stigma has been reduced, more people will cop to it, you know, than perhaps in the past. And that's true, but there is, we're seeing a massive increase in usage and misusage. So this is why the program is so important and can be such a tool for so many people. So if you are suffering or if anyone in your family is suffering or any friends you're suffering, this is a place where you can go to get some relief. So thank let's you, get Jeff. into it. Thank you. Yeah. yeah so li life beyond cannabis. <laughs> What's it mean? You know, uh, well, it, it definitely doesn't mean what you think. Um, it, it is, uh, it, there's good news here for the person who might be struggling or who is wondering if there's something more. They want to just explore a life beyond cannabis. That was the point of the, of the program. Um, it comes out of our direct experience, mine in particular. Um, and so the program is split into basically six weeks. Uh, each week is like a module. Um, the first week is an orientation week of just getting you set up for success. The second week is really about what we call breaking the pattern. And so we believe, I certainly, you know, write and speak all the time about the pattern of addiction. That addiction is kind of like a, a pattern that's written into the mind and body system. And so we need to break out of that pattern to be able to see something different and some, a new possibility. 
And then we're going to need energy. So we, the third module was called build, Building Life Force. And that comes from uh, the yogic teachings, uh, this concept of prana, which literally means life force, uh, which is uh, connected to the breath. So there's a lot of breath work here and a lot of movement of the body in some yogic ways. Um, if that concerns you, you know, if there's so many people that like are concerned about yoga. Uh, it, it is it is the most basic of movements and the most basic of breaths that absolutely change the game for you. Um, so we put them into this program, those experiences. The fourth module is called Unlock Your Power. So we're, now that we're energized, we're going to start to learn how to do certain things that are going to make us more empowered in our choices on the daily basis. Um, the fifth module is changing your mind. So we all understand that really addiction is seated in the mind. It sits there. Anybody who's ever experienced addiction, and that's everybody, in my opinion, on some level, understand what it is to be put upon by their own mind, to experience craving, temptation, uh, obsession, and compulsion. Um, and those are the things that, that lead to actions that are perhaps not in our best interest. So changing your mind is going to be very important. Here we're talking about the practice of meditation, but also mindfulness, also focus, also concentration, also intuition, also looking at the stories that we carry and seeing where those stories are true and where they're false, upgrading the stories. And then the final module is called More Will Be Revealed, which is really about the spiritual aspect of our life, which we're, we're, we're not shy about addressing that aspect of life because it is a, a dimension of human experience. And we're not talking about a, a religion or a cult or a, any particular look at spirituality. It's very broad and very inviting, very empowering and very important that we have that conversation. So people have been having the most extraordinary experiences of healing and success behind this. And when you come into the course once a week, uh, one of our trained coaches is with everybody in the course to answer all questions and, and make sure that you're staying on track and it brings everybody together in community. And of course, that community piece is so important. And uh, yeah, this is, this is a way that you can move into a life beyond addiction. Yeah. And I'll just say, uh, as someone involved in producing a lot of online coursework and education, um, this program is just immaculately produced and delivered. I, I feel you. just watching it. You said earlier, uh, I think you compared opioids to a warm hug. This is a warm hug. This is everything about it feels like a warm hug. Um, it, and you know, we, we alluded to this earlier and there was a video uh, that's in inside the program called cannabis is not your problem. And um, and this was, a, I think, just very revealing for me. Um, and of course, you know, you can almost fill in the blank with cannabis in, in some ways. You know, it might be, uh, you know, alcohol is not your problem or, or, you know, shopping or gambling or, you know, fill in the addiction on, on some level. Um, because, as you say, you know, when the cannabis is gone, really, like, what's there? And I think what, what this program really does 
is that it sets you up for the work once you've ripped kind of the external problem away. Then there's then you're there laid bare to actually do the real work. And this is how this is what the program shepherds you through. It's fantastic. Yeah. Well, it's the strangest thing that when I let go of cannabis, my life began. But what that meant was I was actually going to have to face all of my life, all of the challenges, everything that had piled up in the past that I had tried to push aside. I had to face all of that. It's part of the reason that we don't want to stop. I think on some innate level, we're sensing like we might actually have to do some you know, scary, frightening work here. The truth of the matter is I was scared and frightened for the last couple of years of my cannabis use. I lived in, in pretty, pretty constant fear. I wouldn't have said that to you then. I would have said, I'm fine. What's your problem? You know, and then I would <laughs> go get high, but I, I wasn't fine and I had the problem. And so when that went away, um, the fear dropped considerably. It was like somebody running from an, an invisible, you know, it's the boogeyman, it's the boogeyman, you run away. When you turn around and you stop running, you realize there was nothing there except you. Now, I, I sincerely believe that we pick up cannabis because we're on a spiritual quest. We stay with it because we are on a spiritual quest. So I think it's the right destination that we're headed to, which is, you know, home to the heart. I believe that, but the wrong train. I think we got on the wrong train. And so when you, you put the substances aside and you get grounded and maybe you have, you know, a, a wise counselor or guide or mentor or therapist or sponsor or teacher, and you start exposing yourself to teachings, you start doing some practices. Like we advocate very strongly for yoga and meditation and breath work and, uh, and healthy diet and immersions in nature and this kind of thing. You're now on a different train. I would say you're, you're really on an extremely powerful and very fast train to the destination that you've been seeking all along. So cannabis wasn't your problem. It was actually an attempt at a solution. And it, it wasn't a, a terrible thing. And you, you certainly weren't a bad person. <laughs> Nobody's bad because they smoke pot, you know. Um, and, and some people may still want to smoke pot and that's great for them. And, and if they're in that place and it still serves them, I'm all for it. Um, but for those people who have asked internally the question or externally, uh, what now, what next? You need to know that this has just been a, a, a powerful and important part of your life. And there's something beyond it. If you were drawn into the snake pit of, of cannabis at one juncture or another, you know, don't self-immolate or don't beat yourself up, you know, because really what it does represent is some sort of great desire to feel that sense of inner, of utter connection, right? It's just that it's an inappropriate substitute <laughs> for that desire, right? And so you know, take it as a sign of like, yeah, I am looking for some greater sense of connection. But as you say, 
get on a different train and and you know this program and these modalities um that are old and true offer as you say the the tgv the bullet train if you will um to that sense of connection that you're actually really looking for um and, and you know a, a lot of the information in the program it is also, um, I mean, we're kind of speaking sometimes in a little bit of a esoterica here, but like there's also just stuff in the program that I feel is like very, very um, just practical. You can just put your thumb right on it. You know, it's like clean up your physical environment, right? <laughs> you know, there's just things that you can do just like physically in your own life to, you know, make it easier to catch that train. Yeah. Well, that that um, it's funny that you brought that one up because there there are some very simple things we ask people to do to have success. You know, one of those things we suggest people do is to, you know, throw away their cannabis or give away their cannabis, whatever it is. And some people are like, uh, yeah, like, of course, you know, <laughs> but I'm like, no, you have to say that because you're starting to create an environment and the giving away of cannabis can be a ritualistic act also, and you can make it that sacred as well. And you're starting, uh, you're stepping forth into some new terrain and it's a cool thing, you know, make it cool. But that cleaning up of, of your environment, like literally cleaning up your, your space, your room, your, your home is such a fundamental, powerful thing that we can do. When I went to drug and alcohol treatment, the first thing they teach you is how to make your bed. <laughs> if you don't make your bed, you don't eat. They, and that's no joke. There, there have been a couple stubborn kids that came in there over the years and they were like, fuck you, I'm not doing it. <laughs> you know, and by day two, they were learning how to make their bed so they could have breakfast. But in the doing of that, it's a very simple act. It's, it's such a powerful thing, actually, that you complete it, you do it well, it's yours, it's, it's, it's metaphoric and symbolic at every level, like every level, and uh, it's just a great thing to do. So the most simple things of, of cleaning up your space and getting uncluttered in your life, this is going to help a lot. And for sure, I, I don't know, I know there are exceptions, I actually don't know too many cannabis lovers who are organized <laughs> in their space. I'm sure we'll hear from them. <laughs> well, yeah, we, we will hear from them. I've known a couple over the years. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, my, my, one of my best friends growing up um, was one, falls in that category. And I remember, boy, we, yeah, we certainly indulged together a lot. And I was always a, uh, I always had great reverence for his perfect handwriting because he would, you know, just focus in on like an all caps handwriting. I'll, I'll send him this clip and he'll know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, but, um, but I, I would say by and large, you're, you're correct. It's, it's not a trait shared widely among mm. the cannabis loving crew. Um, so we released life beyond cannabis cause we thought it was funny on 420 this year. <laughs> and um, we we charged 420 for the course, um, but we we give a big discount. The course is discounted, um, but we thought that was funny. 
And, uh, you know, it's turning that whole concept on its head and, and trying to relate to people because I'm not coming at this thing from the outside. I'm coming at yeah. it from the inside and I'm not coming with an agenda other than I really want people to be healthy, happy, joyous and free. And if your cannabis makes you happy, healthy, joyous and free, have at it. But if it if it's if you're at that place where you have the sneaking suspicion that this is getting in the way of your happiness, your health, your joy and your freedom, then this is what the Life Beyond Cannabis program is for. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I uh, wore my Grateful Dead T-shirt today for this um, for this conversation. And, and those who are watching on YouTube will be able to actually see it. It's wonderful. Uh, those on audio, you'll have to imagine the dancing bears climbing Mount Fuji. Yes. Um, but can I you, know. Can you show that more prominently? Can yeah, you, I'll can try you to show? like. I'll you have to go. Flex a little flex moment here. There we are. Uh, yeah. There we go. Yeah. Um, and. You know, it speaks to one component of life beyond cannabis that I'd like to just get at maybe from the backside of the mountain, which is, you know, you continue to be a Grateful Dead head, if you will. I, um, I feel that's a fair characterization, as do I. I grew oh, yes. up going to shows. Um, we've exchanged stories about that. I slept out at Madison Square Garden, my in August or whatever that was, or maybe July, I slept out for the tickets in uh, 1988 for an 11, nine or 11 run, uh, show run in the fall of um, 1988, which is an inauspicious way to start my college career, but nevertheless, <laughs> that's what I did. And, um, um, and part of that club was cannabis. Um, you know, that's what we did. You know, we were part of this cultural scene that we felt like so intoxicated with. It was so freeing and fun. And, um, and we were part of that club. And, and it was. And it was. And so I know one of the things that I, I, I'd love for you to talk about is the component of community in recovery because we so felt connected to this community kind of in our pot smoking days that it was so hard to leave that because we felt like, oh my God, I'm leaving all my friends behind and I'm just gonna be alone. Yeah. So can you just maybe pull the rug out from under that idea? I'm gonna tell you a story. Yeah. You have to imagine me at, uh, I'm 40 days, 40 days sober. It's 1989. I'm in a drug and alcohol treatment facility. Um, I've, I've really, I've done what they asked me to do. I've shown up. Really. I really, I came in fighting, but about halfway in, I put the armor down, I put the gloves down, and I started to really look at my life and look at what was important. And they helped me. They really, really helped me to unravel my confusion and, and therefore my addiction. And it was the beginning of my recovery. And that was Hazelden up in Minnesota. So there I am in this facility and I'm coming to the end and I know that I'm, I'm, I'm getting out. And they call me into a room and I wasn't ready for this. 
and there are three counselors in there. It's me, my, my, my therapist, who I've been meeting with um, twice, two or three times a week for the last four or five weeks, and two other counselors from my, my floor. And they're like, we'd like to have a conversation with you. And I'm like, okay. They're like, you've done incredibly well here. Like, we're really hopeful for your life, for your amazing life and your recovery. I'm like, okay. <laughs> they're like, well, well, there's a couple things that we think would be important for you to consider right now. And I'm like, okay. And they're like, the first thing is, is we really don't want you to leave here and just go back to your life. We want you to go to what was then called a halfway house. Now it's called, you know, uh, intensive outpatient or, or sober living. But then it was these halfway houses. It was just an extended long-term period of recovery with a bunch of people who had just come out of treatment. And I was like, oh my God, I'm just thinking about getting out. I'm so excited to get out. And they're like, they're putting this here. They're like, we really, really recommend that you go to halfway. We want you to go to this place in Arizona. And, uh, and will you go? Will you commit to going right now? And I'm like, how long? And they say, three months. And I'm like, oh my God. It might as well have been 20 years in jail. That's what it felt like at the time. I was about to be with my friends and my loved ones back in Boulder with every intention of staying sober. Sincerely, I did not want to go back to drugs and alcohol. I wanted to stay sober, but they were like insistent. And I said, I just said to them, okay, I'll go, I'll do it. And they were like, really? And I was like, I'll go. And they were like, that's amazing. That's amazing. You're going to make it. You're really going to make it. And they said, we have one more thing. And I was like, what? Oh, no. <laughs> what? Don't push it. <laughs> They're like, we, we don't think you can ever go to a Grateful Dead show again. Oh, no. I got super quiet. I got super quiet. And I looked at them literally. And I said, I'll tell you what. We are going to have to put our heads together and find a way for me to remain sober at Grateful Dead shows because I'm never stopping, ever, ever. I told them that. And you haven't. And, and, and they, were like, they were like, okay. <laughs> when I got out of treatment, and I went to my first Grateful Dead concert sober. Just that year, this organization called the Wharf Rats, which were sober Grateful Dead heads who yeah. met at a, at a, a like a 12-step meeting at set break at all Grateful Dead shows, they had just formed. And so I went to a show, my first show sober, and was able to be amongst a whole community of deadheads who were also sober. Wow. It was like a miracle of miracles. And it's been it's been a joy, joyful ride ever since. I went to all the shows that I could possibly go to between then and when Jerry Garcia died. And I've been to many of the shows with the remaining members ever since. And the community of, of, of sober deadheads has only grown. Mm -hmm. And I was able to be there with my old and dearest friends, whether they were sober or not, and for me to be in a safe and, and contained relatively 
beautiful contained place. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it worked out. So I just, the last thing I want to say is, you know, it is a concern for people getting, letting go of cannabis that they're not going to have anyone to hang out with. Right. Who are, you know, I used to think, who's going to come to my house if I don't have a quarter ounce of pot here all the time? And that's a very limited and very sad way to think about oneself. And there was a whole world waiting for me that I wasn't aware of. And that's scary. But you really want to meet those people and that world that's waiting for you. The most incredible opportunities and relationships and love and and excitement and joy and music and, and all the goodness of life are waiting for you. It doesn't depend upon cannabis. It never did. It's going to depend upon you engaging in the world. So that's what I would say about that. There's, I don't live a lonely life. You know, I, I live a life that's absolutely full and filled with opportunities and people and joy and, and love. And it's, it's just an incredible life. And I, I, could never, I could never have gotten here with, if I kept going down the road of the cannabis train. Yeah. Well, as someone that's been to your house, I can vouch for the company that you keep. I mean, it's truly an unbelievably inspirational crew and, you know, you create beautiful space for people. Um, and, you know, community of course is, you know, so essential to, to holistic happiness and and health. And obviously I have a company called commune. I think the thread through my entire life, uh, for in one iteration or another has been about fostering community and, and space for people to connect. And it's really such a central part of, of discovery and recovery, as you say. Um, you know, obviously there's an accountability component to it where, you know, if we tell a friend and, hey, I'm going on this journey, um, you know, into recovery, you know, that that's there's a thing called the Hawthorne effect, which is like, you know, your behavior changes, like when you're, when you feel like you're studied or, or that there's witness. Um, but also just, you know, the sense that you're on a journey together with people and, uh, and the, and the support system that that creates and the fellowship, obviously, I mean, you've been involved with, you know, very key and important fellowships your whole life. Um, and uh and so i think you know and you stress this in in the program and you provide that community and those touch points for people um you know and i think that's so important for people again who might be uh reticent or nervous that there's going to be no one there but really just the opposite there's just such a a loving a warm embrace of people there so yeah well done with that thank you jeff so much um, last thing, I, I know you just finished a fast. You mentioned that, um, yes. uh, a more, uh, I would call it not severe. It's not the right word, but a more, uh, stringent fast than I, I'm a 16, eight intermittent kind of time restricted faster, but you had a five day yes. water fast. Is that right? Yep. Yep. I, I just broke that yesterday morning. Um, well, uh, first I would say, you know, it's an austerity, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's difficult. Um, uh, and it, and it's, it's wonderful and, and very eye opening on so many levels. Um, my, some of the big takeaways for me, uh, I, I literally can report from the field that day one and day two were the days where I felt 
hungry or to say that my mind was on food uh, in, a, in a kind of a compulsive way and that was uncomfortable. When I woke up on day three, I had such a surge of energy and I was just drinking water, you know, so, but a lot of water, like just whenever I felt hungry, I would drink water. And, and so I probably drank about, um, you know, maybe 300 ounces of water a day, which is an incredible amount of water. And, uh, and I just felt great on day three. Day four, I felt, I felt unbelievable until my wife cooked dinner in our home and I smelled it. <laughs> and I thought about maybe taking her out at the knees, <laughs> stealing, her, <laughs> stealing her food, you know? Yeah. But then I woke up on day five and I knew I was going to break, break. This was yesterday morning. I knew I was going to break the fast. And the way I would do that would be very consciously because as with all these things, the integration of it is more important than the thing itself. Yeah. So now I'm in the integration period. But I, on day five, I went to the gym for a full training with my coach. Hmm. I told him, I said, you know, I, I haven't eaten food for, for four and a half days. And um, he was like, oh, my God. He's like, are you insane? I'm like, no, I, I feel so good and so energetic. And he put me, you know, through a beautiful workout. And I, I, I had the energy to do it. I went home, I broke my fast with um, a beautiful uh, bowl of, of vegetarian stew, which I made for myself, and um, uh, an avocado with some olive oil and Celtic sea salt, and a little bit of sauerkraut for those probiotics. And it was just fantastic. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was a, a spiritual, I, I almost want to say a sexual, spiritual experience with food. Just incredible. And uh, it, I feel so, I just feel so good. I don't I don't know. I mean, I know you yeah. you know a lot about this. So well, I, a I'm sure that was one of the best meals you ever truly tasted. Um, <laughs> Everybody, but, you know, yeah. But I, I bring up fasting because uh, I think there's an analogy here, and it, it's not a difficult one to make. I mean, you know, for those who might have difficulty is fasting from a substance like cannabis or alcohol, et cetera. Um, you might try it with food because what fasting did for me was it helped me be more mindful about my behaviors and to the point where I could uh, delineate between what was a psychological craving and a biological need. So I was like, this is a psychological craving. This is a biological need. I can stand up here and witness the difference between those things and then be like, oh, well, I don't need to fulfill that psychological desire right now. That's okay. But a biological need, yeah, sure. You know, we have to eat, we have to drink eventually. So for me, what this helped to train me to do is if I could witness my cravings, then could that punctuate my life in other ways such that I didn't necessarily have to like check my phone all the time. It, it transcended just the, the world of, of food and consumption into a, other spaces in my life. <laughs> you know, um, could I be more present with my children, et cetera? Did I have to, uh, um, you know, did I have to have a drink? every night 
Or could I just witness that as a psychological desire versus a biological need? So I think fasting can be very useful um, outside of just, you know, the, the physiological uh, benefits that one gets. It is uh, yes. obviously a spiritual quest long baked into many traditions. Yeah, I, I, I think it's only, you know, for me in the community that I work with uh, people who have experienced addiction in a variety of ways. Um, there's only one category of people that I wouldn't necessarily recommend it for, which is people who have been addictively restricting their food. <laughs> yes. So people yes. who struggle with anorexia or, or any other eating disorder, like that really needs to be handled carefully for those people. I wouldn't recommend it in their cases, but, um, you know, as a, as a species, we've been fasting either intentionally or unintentionally. Um, for since the beginning, essentially. So there's a there's a long, long lineage of this. And I think we're we're learning how to uh, tap into some of the body's healing potential by diverting the body's energy from digestion into cleanup. And I Absolutely. think that's a lot of what I've experienced. And uh, I love what you said about it, it, it affecting, you know, it training you into greater consciousness in, in all areas of your life, really. Yeah. Yay for us. <laughs> Yay for everybody. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the, we're, we're, the journey of discovery continues. So, yeah. uh, Tommy, can you uh, just help people find you um, sure. in, in all of your various expressions? Sure. So uh, our website is r20.com. Uh, we have, uh, you can find most everything we do there. Uh, the Life Beyond Cannabis program, everything is r20.com. And then you have sla forward slash Life Beyond Cannabis, forward slash meetings. This is for our, our meetings. We have, I don't know if you know, Jeff, we have 35 meetings a week now online, free, wow. open to everyone from anywhere. They're kind of like a 12-step meeting meets meditation group. Uh, it's really kind of cool and, and amazing. And we've got literally hundreds and hundreds of people coming to meetings every week now. And so just get there at r20.com forward slash meetings. That's if you're needing community and, and desire to connect with a tribe of folks who are looking at their lives in a certain way and trying to live their best life. Um, we love to take people to India and, and Costa Rica and across Europe and uh, Canada and the U.S., we do destination retreats throughout the year. We have, um, we're taking 70 people to Costa Rica in a couple of weeks, very excited for that. Um, but I'd, I'd like to let people know about our India trip. It's an immersion into the spirituality and the teachings of yoga, meditation and breath in India, in the birthplace of yoga, Rishikesh. That's in March every year. And I'd love you guys to check that out at forward slash India 2024. So everything again, r20.com forward slash India 2024. And then finally, uh, our, our podcast, uh, we, have, we have a podcast we launched just this year. Um, we're just at about 300,000 downloads now. It's very exciting for us. And it's called In the Circle with Tommy Rosen. And uh, you're invited there. That's a good place to dip a toe in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. And, um, you know, Tommy, our lives have been intersecting and intertwined now for, I'd say, a good 15 years yep. and, and probably before we even knew 
um, each other by name Definitely. in our lives were intersecting. And, uh, and now uh, we find connection places formally and very informally on the uh, hiking trails of Topanga, sometimes just by serendipity. Um, but every time we connect more formally, kind of in this format, I'm always just amazed and inspired by your journey and all the work that you continue to do and all the people that you're helping. Um, it really is truly a, a guiding light and, uh, and uh, helps me step into the best version of myself. So thanks so much, Tommy. Thank you, Jeff. The feeling I can assure you is mutual. So thank you. Okay. Yeah. All right. To be continued. Absolutely. Thank you, Tommy Rosen. Thank you, Jeff Grasnow. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Tommy Rosen. For more information on Recovery 2.0 and the Life Beyond Cannabis program, visit r20.com. That's r20.com, recovery2.0.com. Now, if you enjoy this show and would like to receive 30 days of free all access to commune membership, well, write us a review. On Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the review section and tap write a review and then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your glittering glamorous review to gain access to more than 130 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders, all free for 30 days. And while you're there, make sure that you're subscribed. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime with questions, suggestions, criticism of the constructive variety at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week, including Jacob Law, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Cooper Mall, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I'm here for you. <laughs>